1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 16 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The biweekly blast from the past where we revisit the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still trying to figure out why the DC Universe doesn't just hold annual crisis management training to help their characters avoid all the problems they've been having these last 30-odd years. I'm Adam. And wondering what would have happened if Sergeant Al Powell from Die Hard had become
0: Spawn instead of Al Simmons. I'm Michael.
1: And joining us this time around from the Chris's on Infinite Earths blog, Cosmic Treadmill podcast, Weird Comics History, Moratory Mondays, the forthcoming Quester Days, and Epic Elf Quest podcast. How do you do it? Yes, it's Chris Sheehan. Welcome. Hey, how are you? How are you? I'm
2: so happy to be here. I want to thank you guys for uh, letting me on here. Uh, I've been doing this a while and I don't get invited out terribly often to play so it really means a lot when it happens so uh, I'm looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a really good time.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. It is a true pleasure. I've collaborated with Chris on a monumental podcast that we may see the return of when time allows. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> the Claremont to Claremont podcast. I know on there I let Chris in on the, the reality that his work in podcasting and his thorough study and research when it comes to podcasting was an inspiration to me for sure a kindred spirit there's not many of us that want to dig into a moment in time and literally just okay from here to here to here to here. what was happening this month or whatever (laughs) in comics from every publication every bullpen bulletin whatever it is oh yeah (laughs) I will not mention to you, when I was considering this show and putting it together, I did consider calling you Chris, but then I realized that we might have a show that was even longer than Claremont to Claremont's (laughs) 10 to 11 hours. Oh, God. The talking that we could do uh, and the research hours sure. that we would spend. So we're glad to have you here for this special occasion. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, I do uh, invite you, yeah, to sit back because class is in session. You've heard of Professor X. We have Professor S. And uh, he, will, <laughs> he will bring it in a, in a fun and enlightening way for sure. But Chris, uh, we want to understand how this whole comics thing got started for you. So why don't you tell us your origin? story.
2: A little bit of a a Christory lesson, if you will. Um, (laughs) Now, uh, I actually, you know, growing up, I I was born with five days left in the 1970s. Very, very tail end of the 70s. So, grew up during the 80s and 90s where, you know, for the first decade of my life, comics were just everywhere. You know, you you couldn't go anywhere without seeing comics. And uh, as the uh, speculation ramped up, comics were just, you know, you couldn't avoid them. I somehow did avoid them Until like 1988, 1989 I really didn't pay attention to comics I had some, wasn't a collector And This is a story I've told before So if people who have heard any of my stuff are listening They're like, oh, he's going to tell this story again And uh, yeah, I'm going to tell a little bit of this story again I'll keep it as short as I can I discovered comics via ElfQuest And uh, it wasn't even an ElfQuest comic book That brought me to a comic store It was something called the ElfQuest Gatherum Which is just a collection of various ElfQuest Ephemera and bits and pieces from the comics buyers' guide, the Comics Journal, interviews with Wendy and Richard Pini, sketches—just a, a wonderful little collection of assorted knickknacks of the ElfQuest variety. And part of that uh, collection is actually these little, these like character outlines that you could use if you were uh, designing characters for role-playing games. And a friend of mine, he had me as his, you know, artist for his Dungeons and Dragons campaigns uh, until I found out he no longer needed me because he had these books where he could trace these characters out and just make these fantastic looking characters. And I asked him, how did you do that? Because you know yesterday you couldn't draw, and now you're drawing these awesome things. So a little bit of reading in the Gatherum just to see if, you know what the story might contain, and from there I was off to the races. Our public library had a very, very small collection of graphic novels, and ElfQuest was part of it. And in case the listeners don't know, graphic novels are, are kind of expensive. Uh, when you're a kid, you ain't getting 20, 30 bucks for a graphic novel if you're in my family. Uh, so I had to make do with the single issues, and uh, since the Single issues were already kind of old at this point. I actually had to go to a comic book store for the first time, and that was my entry point. I, I went to a comic book store looking for ElfQuest comics, and I never left. You know, I uh, I saw everything else that was there. I was goaded onto the dark side here and started looking at the X-Men, started looking at just about anything that was, you know, hot in the 90s, which was everything in the 90s. And it just never
1: let me go. So you didn't have a down period then? There was no distraction from collecting? In comics, you've, you've seen it through I, since that moment?
2: <laughs> well, I've had, I, I actually had a few temper tantrums. i um, <laughs> i had a temper tantrum in 1995 and it was due to one of the things that like really captured me was things like wizard um that we're going to be discussing here and that you guys cover uh all the time it, it was like our little blue chip guide to what you want to read what's going to be hot what's going to be you know valuable you know what's going to be you know your blue chip stock that's just gonna you know you you the old cliche of putting you through college or put a down payment on a house you know and a lot of that was gimmicks and i bought into gimmicks not really in a speculative Way not not with an eye toward reselling them, but just as a way of hoarding. You know, it's like this is gonna be hot. I want it.
0: So I'm gonna stop you there. Were you into Beanie Babies too? Were you like in the, the Beanie <laughs> no, Baby no, trend? No, no Beanie Babies. <laughs> I'm uh, i was oh, totally kidding. <laughs> but like in the 90s, that was a thing. Like people were like, oh, I gotta hoard these Beanie Babies. They're gonna sell big.
2: Oh, you know, people in my family were into Beanie Babies, and they. <laughs> I remember the silliest thing was that they would have these little plastic covers that would latch onto the to the Ty tags yes (laughs) it was nuts
1: so (laughs) let me ask you this what was the most attractive gimmick as far as you were concerned variant covers or some type of enhancement to the cover what what got you the most sparkliness (laughs)
2: <laughs> Give me the sparkle, and I, and I was all over it. Whether I could afford it or not was a different question altogether. But if you had a cover with uh with that, that I could see my reflection in, or that would uh yeah, that would shine in in the right light, oh, I was all in on that. And that's actually the reason why I threw my temper tantrum because I, I started running out of money, and I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. So if I'm buying the X-Men, I'm buying all 55 monthly issues of X-Men that come out of the, a part of that family. You know, that's just the way I am. And it got to the point where I could no longer sustain it. They celebrated the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men, which came out of nowhere for someone like me who wasn't really familiar with comics history at that point. And I went into the store expecting to pay, you know, a buck 75 for my comic, and it was on the shelf for $4. And then I find out that every X-Men book that month or for the next couple of months was going to be, you know, up three or four four bucks each and i was like i can't do it anymore and i, I just walked out and uh that was a little break i took late 95 to mid 97 and i thought i was just going to be done but as i was leaving the store that day the guy's like well you'll be back and i'm like no nah, i won't and damned if he wasn't right
1: but it was always a conscious choice on your part it wasn't a life distractions that it was always i'm over it for now
2: oh no no like i remember <laughs> like a week after i walked out of the comic shop that awful day i remember just asking my friend like to tell me what happened in the issue. And he's like, why didn't you just buy it? I'm like, I'm not going to buy it now. I I, I, I was just like, <laughs> I was so mad. I was throwing a fit. I was, you know, spitting nails, but I still cared about the characters. I still cared about the stories. I wanted to know what in the hell an onslaught was. You know, I wanted to know all that stuff, but I just couldn't bring myself to put the money down.
1: And so, Chris, speaking of which, the other thing that we share in common is our love of digging through the bargain bins and finding those bits yes. of history. So I know that that is a, a treasure hunt you love to embark on quite often could you recall maybe the the greatest find for yourself in a bargain bin
2: i may not be gifted in many ways but i am gifted when it comes to uh, the hunt uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm not gifted
2: talented charismatic but i can find cheap comics. and i uh i actually have found some amazing things in uh, the uh, 50 cent quarter dollar bins it's Anytime I'm anywhere that might have a comic book, I'm I'm digging. It could be a record store, a used bookstore, an antique store, anywhere that I think there I, I can sniff out a comic, I will look and see what I can find. And I found Avengers Annual number ten for a dollar, which is the first appearance of Rogue. I bought Uncanny X Men two sixty six, which is the first appearance of Gambit for eighty cents. Um, I'm sorry, eight cents, not eighty wow. cents, eight cents. It was in a dime box at a half price books, and it was a Fourth of July sale where everything was twenty percent off. <laughs> (laughs) So So I got it. I got the first appearance of Gambit. Awesome. Perfect condition. Eight cents. John burns next men number 21 the first color appearance of Hellboy got that for a dollar uh, there were actually three of them in a row but I, I only took one because I, I I share the wealth I don't I don't believe in in hoarding the, uh, multiple copies of the same book so uh, I bought that for a buck and hopefully two other people got it for a buck too and not just some other guy grabbing them both but that's probably what happened it's funny because you think about you know these fines that you get and sometimes they feel like they're too good to be true I was in a half price books once and they've got their dollar bins and then they also So have like a quarter bin and I I dug through the quarter bin first. That's generally what I do. And I found an issue of Sandman, the uh, Neil Gaiman Sandman, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on. I think it was issue number 12 and it was there for a quarter. So I'm like, okay, I needed that one. So I picked it up and then I went over to the dollar bin and I found uh, both parts of Days of Future Past. Uh, So Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142 for a dollar each. And I snagged them. I ran over to the wife like I I was sweating. You know, I was sweating (laughs) like I stole something. I'm like, we got to go right now start rolling i'm like sweating i'm biting my nails i'm like oh, the guy at the register is gonna know that this is you know that they're giving this stuff away and he's gonna he's not gonna let me take him home so i go up to the register plop him down on the counter and the guy looks and he shakes his head he's like i can't believe this and i was like yeah i know he's like i can't believe we put sandman in the quarter bin and i, I was just like yeah yeah you did You <laughs> <That's laughs> did, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the surprise. You, you, you can keep that one if you want. But, uh, but yeah, it was uh, an amazing find. It's, it's just something I'm able to do. I, I share some pictures sometimes online, and I'm almost certain people think I'm lying. But yeah, I very seldom pay more than a single folding dollar for a comic book, unless it's new, of course.
1: That is fantastic. I mean, obviously, there's so many more stories to get to. But, you know, I think back in the day when Marvel was raising their prices on those X-books, you might have wanted to write them a letter chris and tell them how you felt so i think it's time we open up
0: willie lumpkins mailbag it
1: really it and
0: it's kind of funny because digging in a mailbag or digging into a, a quarter bin kind of felt like a good transition in my opinion but i
1: digress anyway <laughs> Working out those transition skills, eh, Michael? Always be
0: learning, baby. Always be learning. <laughs> Trying to always improve. So uh, we have a reader named Frank Tartaglia from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I probably said his name right for a first, which is pretty amazing. I'll give you that. Reports on meeting Garib Seamus at San Diego Comic-Con. All right, here we go. Dear Wizard, I went to San Diego Comic-Con 92 all the way from Philadelphia this year. A gift from my parents for getting A's last year in school. It was worth the trip. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. Aside from Psylocke in a bathing suit in Marvel swimsuit issue. Yeesh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to the wizard booth, and there I met the big cheese, the almighty, world-renowned Garibas Seamus. He appeared much more stocky in person not at all the skinny little nerd he seemed to appear as in his photos i asked him to sign my limited edition wizard special in the plastic i think i ticked him off i don't make the plastic he said i make the book he frightened me so much i opened up the plastic and he violently signed the book i guess he has something against plastic signing or something. Well, I hope he continues to stay the nice, somewhat young president of Wizard. The comic book fans have come to know and love Frank Tara Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm always the disgruntled fanboy, <laughs>
1: <laughs> never the bride. Ooh, now you've done it. Garib himself is gonna answer your letter, and you thought he was scary in San Diego.
2: A what? A what? A skinny little nerd? Is that what you think? Well, I'm glad I dispelled your worst nightmare. I put on a few pounds and I try to be cool. Really, I try. I hope I wasn't violent or frightening. I like all wizard fans. In any case, I don't like signing polybags in general because the polybag is only used to keep the card in. So I only like to sign what we produce, the magazine. I'm truly glad you stopped by to say hello and I'm happy you enjoyed the show. I also had a great time. See you soon. The big cheese. P.S. If you ever call me nerd again, I'll personally drive to Philly and beat you into an unrecognizable jelly. (laughs) Ha ha
1: ha! Oh, Garab making his first appearance in the Magic Words, getting involved. Mm. Wow.
2: Yes. So, you guys, uh, you know, you're on your 16th Prime episode here. Have you guys had any run ins with Garab yet?
1: Yes. We've actually had some back and forth a little bit on Twitter, and he gave us some interesting details like, mm. did you know that Wizard Number One, that image of Spider Man, he said he commissioned that from Todd McFarlane Todd, originally yep. for his dad? Yep. Yeah, I had a couple of run-ins
2: with Garib really? way back uh, in the in the '90s. He was one of the very first, you know, pros or people in the biz that I sent an email to. Uh, the first person I ever emailed from the comics business. This is back on AOL, you know, uh, 1994ish probably. First person I ever emailed was Richard Peeney. Uh, uh It was an ElfQuest question, but I then emailed Garib because i was a big x-men action figures fan and they had a listing for a gauntlet action figure from uh, apocalypse's dark riders this figure never came out so i kept asking him about it because the only place i ever saw it was in wizard and i said you keep listing this thing where is it i'd like to see it is it you have pictures of it and he uh, he basically told me to buzz off (laughs) 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 <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, oh, you know, sometimes we get information, yada, yada, yada. But then a few years later, I am an X-Men completionist. And in their price guide, they have a listing for X-Men Volume 2, Number Zero. I just wanted to know where it was or if it was because I, I'm the kind of guy who has to own everything. And knowing that there might be an X-Men volume two number zero out there that I don't own and I've never seen really got under my skin. It's never come out. And so I asked him about it and he, he basically made fun of me for asking for it. I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember walking away from that email quite annoyed. He, he didn't want to hear it. He wasn't too uh, forthcoming with information
1: oh well that is fantastic though that you've had that interaction we'll use this as an opportunity also to plug our upcoming series of wizard staffer interviews where they will share some very interesting stories about garab and they may be similar along those lines or even more surprising so just stay if, if tuned they can get me an x-men number zero i'll be all over
0: <laughs> we, we, we've conducted a couple of interviews so far and they are fascinating just like to hear these guys talk it blows my mind about just the things you See behind the cloak and you kind of like Get a little bit of glimpse of what it's like It was very very interesting stuff and I'm, I'm Looking forward to this series a lot it's very Cool we're going to cool. skip the wave riders Wayback machine this week because My colleagues here of, of Adam And Chris have a lot to say About stuff that I probably know Nothing about <laughs> so we, we Will probably you know save Ourselves some time by skipping the wave riders This week so anyway Adam What do we got in our table of contents
1: this week all right well uh here we are with wizard number 16 december 1992 cover date here it is a darker image cover which features dale keown's pit sam keith's the max along with jim lee's Deathblow and rob liefeld's lobo clone Bloodwolf. on the cover there are some signatures so it looks like each artist actually did draw their own character much like the comic-con cover what's interesting about this i i've mentioned this in the past many folks will remember my visit to the extreme studios around this time as a young man and my consolation prize for no comics professionals being in the office when i went on my tour was they gave us a copy of darker image number one to take out the door with us so (laughs) it always sticks in my brain but speaking of this cover just posted it shortly before the show and so many people today have said this was their first issue of wizard this got people to pick Up the magazine. For some reason, the Max, Pitt, whoever it was they were seeing, they got excited. So this was a popular issue for a lot of our listeners out there. But Dale Keown himself is actually interviewed, and he explains his art style actually developed while he was on the road in various rock bands over the years, and that he broke into comics after seeing a commercial for a publisher called Aircell, saying that they were in need of artists. Chris, what can you tell us about Air Cell? Comics.
2: Aerosol is a is an interesting study. Uh, they were based out of Ottawa, Ontario, and they were uh, originally a foam insulation outfit that were partially funded <laughs> by the Canadian government. In uh, 1985, the feds pulled their funds and a fellow by the name of Barry Blair, a cartoonist, he suggested they shift their focus to comic books. This is 1985. There was an independent black-and-white comic boom. Uh, Most notably, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were really kicking around that time. AirSell would wind up being sort of kind of bought by Malibu Comics because Soul would merge with Eternity Comics, which was bought by Malibu Comics. Uh, They became a Malibu imprint. Now, they're probably most known, if they're known at all, for being the publishers of the Men in Black comic book by Lowell Cunningham in 1990. So uh, something pretty big came out of that little studio.
1: Wow, yeah, the funding fell out and so did it. the need for the foam insulation I don't know yeah, who knows <laughs> business yeah. couldn't have been that good if the government pulls out and then you're gone but that's fantastic so Keon tells us also that it was Marvel editor Bobby Chase that helped him get the gig drawing on The Incredible Hulk which is what rocketed him to superstardom after a stint taking over art chores with Bruce Banner's cousin on Sensational She-Hulk and I think he also said that his first time even drawing Drawing the Hulk for Marvel was for the cover of an issue of What The? That's kind of funny. But at this point in time now, he has left Marvel to self-publish At image, what I find most interesting is that being a musician, Keon announces that he's already written a five-minute pit theme song and wants to figure out how to include it in a future issue of a comic book. He's like probably not a flexi disc, but something. (laughs) Back in the day, used to I think you could get them on like cereal boxes or McDonald's would put the record in the paper so you could win their sweepstakes. And he's trying to figure out some other way. So it eventually did come out, and he had a band called the crew (laughs) which works on several (laughs) levels and it's it's a pretty solid 90s heavy metal It's not bad with that past guest Jeff and Logan77 on Twitter. I made a trade recently and I ended up with a copy of Pit Number One, the Rippin' first issue. And it's actually not the first appearance. He he first appeared in a little backup story preview, if you will, in a Youngblood number four to introduce some mystery, some visual for the character, and then uh, we got this. But Chris, uh, can you explain Pit? We get a little uh,
2: description of Pitt here from Mr. Keon in, in the uh, interview, and it almost sounds like someone explaining like a fever dream or, <laughs> or maybe like half of a fever dream because they forgot the rest. It's, uh, it's pretty out there. I've never read an issue of Pitt, so... <laughs> I don't know if these things came together. I mean, you got a guy called the Seer. You got uh, you got the, the massive body of Pit. You have a kid named Timmy who's put into the body of Pit somehow. I mean, in fairness, it does sound a lot more interesting than a lot of the stuff we get nowadays. Uh, so I, I can't judge but it sounds pretty wild. I'm not inspired to to dig it out of the box, but uh, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting.
1: So this was my thought as I read through this because, you know, I picked up pit number one and I was just like, yeah, it's just going to be, you know, a lot of wild art. It's going to be... And so, yes, the story as it pertains to this, like, alien criminal who gets a little kid put in his head and then he ends up being transported to Earth. I mean, it's like the the story's kind of convoluted, but the art is actually really crisply drawn, I guess you would say, is despite, like, there is a lot he battles a biker gang on the first page, and that he's got like all sorts of stuff going on, but this is what I realized about Dale Keown because I was not familiar with his work on the Hulk or anything like that, is that he's almost, what I would call all of the image star power from the original Seven Founders, feels like it kind of congealed in him, where it's like, you know what, everything he does here is indicative of image, but it's just like a little bit better you know it's like todd mm-hmm. mcfarlane really good at drawing spawn and backgrounds but his people look like muppets blob noses yeah yeah the strange stuff going on there and then you know rob liefeld all bombast all macho all action but the stories there's nothing there and the characters there's nothing to latch on to but you you have some really uh, nice layouts and jim lee can draw proper proportions. Well Dale Keown his people look like humans. The proportions are nice there. His action with Pitt is really well staged and exciting. And then Shadowhawk, Jim Valentino's stuff, it's more like the mystery of Shadowhawk. And in this, Pitt is presented as a mystery. You don't know what's going on at first. They they show like this voice talking to him. You don't know why. You don't know where he came from. You don't know anything. He just showed up on Earth and he's in a battle. But there's like promise to to explain later essentially and obviously you know if you want to go with the eric larson he's a big guy who punches people like (laughs) savage dragon so i was impressed like i say simply just with the art itself where i expected it to be a mess and i was like you know what pretty talented stuff here I, i dig it
2: yeah I, I was uh familiar with his hulk and, and it's fantastic he's he's a he's a very good artist for sure i i really enjoyed his work on Hulk that whole run on Hulk was just magic uh peter david was paired with some some amazing artists for most of the run and yeah Keon was definitely a bright spot in a mess of bright spots he was also he was a bright spot especially
1: yeah so uh we'll be interested to hear from you pit fans out there what you thought so next we talked about the sandman earlier we kind of teased this but there is an artist who had been working with Neil Gaiman to some great acclaim on a Sandman story called Season of Mists. And this is Kelly Jones. And he starts off, actually, he's he's explaining how there's all these multiple editions of these, you know, collected Season of Mists. He's like, one is like leather-bound or something? It looks like an old book, you know? One is like a, a bargain books collection that you can order from some book club, I think. Everybody wants to read this story, apparently. And he's explaining that he's usually, you know, assigned kind of these gory, more dark, violent tales, stuff like Aliens Hive at Dark Horse or have you read this one, Michael? Batman, Dracula, Red Rain?
0: I have read that one, yeah. I do like that story a lot, yeah. They actually just recently, in a book with Wally West called Flash Forward, Wally West goes to that Earth, and Batman has made all of the heroes vampires. It's pretty good. Ah,
1: good, and then Now he's moving on to uh, some creator-owned project called Umbra, which, Chris, do you know of Umbra? Is that a project that came to fruition? I have never heard of Umbra before. But is Kelly Jones an artist of note on your side in any of your collections? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. Kelly Jones is a...
1: Uh, uh, last year,
2: I ran through the entirety of Action Comics Weekly. Uh, I did that every single day for about 300 days, uh, because it ran like 40-something issues. Uh, but uh, Kelly Jones was on the uh, Dead Man story there, uh, the second and, I think, third arcs of the Dead Man story, and uh, really uh, really made that story come together, because of his stylized work. I think it re- he really brought the best out of that story, where the artist that was before uh, on Dead Man is actually one of my very favorite artists, Dan Jurgens, who I think was miscast. Um, Kelly Jones just outclassed him in the Deadman department. <laughs> I, I definitely do appreciate when he does Batman, and you have like the giant ears on on the cowl. I like I like how that looks. I don't know how it would work functionally, but it, it looks really cool. So it's a it gives like a whole sinister vibe to it. I, uh, he's he's a really good artist. Yeah.
1: Moving off of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, there is an absolutely fascinating article here. It's a bait and Switch because the opening page of it has all like the Dave McKean style art and border around it. It looks like it's a, it's a story about Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Instead, it goes into a history of the Golden Age Sandman, the Wesley Dodds character, and explains the origins there. Talks about like how Bob Kane did a revamp, like a superhero version of that Sandman. And then later, that Jack Kirby and Joe Simon did a totally unrelated version of Sandman that was actually the inspiration in part for the Neil Gaiman's award-winning interpretation. Basically, I think just from a copyright perspective, that's what they were publishing. <laughs> but what were your takeaways from this article, Chris? Oh, we've done a lot of uh, research on Sandman,
2: on the cosmic treadmill and, and stuff like that. And uh, we had a particular soft spot for the 70s version. The Joe Simon and Jack Kirby one-shot. It was supposed to be a one-shot. It went six issues, but it was supposed to be a one-shot. Um, it was uh, one of the very last things that Kirby... Uh, it might actually have been the last thing Kirby was contracted to do his initial time at DC. And uh, it's a—it's just a wild story. With me, Golden Age stuff kind of runs hot and cold, so there's some stuff there I dig because it's just so outlandish and, and wild, uh, but then there's some stuff where it's just like, okay, get on with it already. And uh, Sandman kind of falls into... Uh, eh, he, he has some bright spots in the Golden Age, but uh, I like his look. It's about it. But the 70s one was the one that, that Reggie and I would talk about a lot because it was just so strange and so weird. Weird.
1: Yeah, it's like a dream stream and he monitors the dream stream in a fantasy dimension. He's in dimension. the dream dome.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and and there's like a there's like a young psychic boy named Jed. It's just it's it's insane. And there's a, there's like two dream merchants, Brute and Glob. Uh like one looks like Krang from the Ninja Turtles. Uh, <laughs> it's just some wild wild
1: stuff. And I believe that but Gaiman does like he tries to take certain elements of that and feeds yes. them into his stories eventually, which is kind of fantastic. Fascinating, it's true because
2: he would use the Simon and Kirby 70s Sandman in the doll's house, which I think is the second big arc of his Sandman run here because he had that seventy Sandman who was named Garrett Sanford. He'd be succeeded in name and body by Hector Hall, who's the son of Hawkman and Hawk Girl, the former silver Scarab <laughs> future of Dr. Fate, and he's insane. it's a lot of fun i'm a I'm a huge sucker for lore, so if you were to tell me, like, everything's on the table, that, that's all you need to tell me. So that Gaiman was actually playing with Legacy and DC heroes of the past uh, ages and stuff. Loved it. It tickled me like uh, like it like it shouldn't have, but it did. Really, really fun stuff here. Um, I was reading, during our research here, we found out that uh, Neil Gaiman actually pitched the concept of Sandman to George R. R. Martin before DC Comics. George Martin, uh, what does he do, Fire and Ice or whatever it is? I've never seen it. Right, so which which became uh, game of thrones right there you go there you go uh, that's that's the one i was thinking of uh he had an anthology collection of novels called wild cards and uh, neil pitched a character who lived in dreams and george Martin called him a skinny british kid dressed all in black and since he didn't have any credits to his name he blew him off so uh <laughs> if not for that we might not have our sandman he later said that he regretted blowing neil gammon off so
1: as most people would
2: <laughs> I would imagine so i'd imagine so. I always thought that was an interesting thing because uh you know just how uh how highly acclaimed uh that his run on Sandman is, and just to think we were we were like a hair's breadth away from never even getting it it's just, uh it's kind of interesting
1: well and i i think it's fascinating too to think then because what if he had been accepted would sandman have been as popular in prose you know like it just just being a written character or was it really the visuals of that era that you know combined that that made him so popular like that's the reality i would like to visit is wherever he's just a character in novels
2: yeah because it's a perfect marriage of art and and literature the dc comic here i read very little that isn't comic, so i I wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> I don't know. I read comics and I read psychology textbooks for school. There's nothing in between.
0: When, when you think of Sandman, and I'm not a, I I've never read all the books. I've read a couple of them here and there. Kind of what Chris said is like a, it's a beautiful marriage of the art and the story. When you make it into a novel, every reader has a different visualization of what these characters should look like. That if it ever became a graphic novel or a movie, it would never translate and people would be... Very disappointed and you'd have the trolls online complaining, oh, they've ruined Sandman. It looks nothing like I pictured it. Whereas if you have it in the book with the graphic novel, you have that visualization of what the characters, what the world feels like. And there's so much world building and story to that whole thing that you needed the both together I think
1: yeah for sure I mean he somehow managed to capture the imagination of even people who aren't general comics readers like us and so that that speaks a lot to like you say the, the marriage of those two mediums but uh, speaking of reading Peter David uh, aforementioned Peter David provides a great explanation of a topic that he is constantly hounded by fans about which is the process of breaking in as a comics writer so he basically says he's going to write this article and it's going to become a form letter that he is going to send out to everybody that says how do I get into comics and basically his main point is he repeatedly encourages the reader to read things other than comics so that they have a base of knowledge and experience to put into their stories so Chris Peter David would be very disappointed that you're reading so much of his work and nothing else
2: (laughs) I've had a few interactions with him and I think he's he's very disappointed with me. I, I love the guy, he's one of my favorites. Depends on who I've read most recently. If I read a Peter David comic today, he's my favorite comic writer until I read something else. I think he's fantastic. I, I don't know that he shares that opinion. With Michael, me. you've had a
1: run in with him. I don't think you were asking for advice though, right? Yeah, I'm one of those people that whenever I
0: see, you know, my favorite writers or artists, I don't want to ask those questions. because I feel like they must be asked that 7000 times in a signing that I'll ask them like, uh, uh, so who's your favorite character you've written? And they and they look at you like, dude, we've asked her that a million times. I can't name them because there's so many. And this is what happened with, with Peter Dave with me. I, I said to him, so, you know, I, I love your Supergirl run you know, who's your favorite story you wrote? And he's like, they're all my children. I love all of them differently. And I was like, okay I can accept that answer that's a cool answer it makes sense and kind of walked away but it's one of those things where I'm like don't ask a dumb question don't be that guy and I'm always that guy
1: <laughs> when I liked that at this point in his career you know he's just like look can I just lay it out for you guys and then we'll, we'll cut to the chase ask me what I had for lunch ask me what I'm listening to on the car radio but his suggestions for aspiring writers he says you want to be writing a story for an existing title that an editor can use as a fill-in issue when needed because like they're one of the questions is so what am I trying to do? You're trying to make yourself useful to an editor and it's kind of like get out of your own head realize what the job is and what they would want you for what makes you appealing and he admits that he started in the sales department and then moved into writing so he's saying really getting into the industry at any level is a major plus
2: I, I have a little bit on him his earliest pitches for Marvel they were for Moon so he was following his own advice. They were however rejected by editor Denny O'Neill. The uh, popular thought there is that editorial didn't really want to you know cross the streams between creative and you know the office. So I don't think that was necessarily an indictment on Peter's writing because I don't know that I've ever read anything of Peter Davids that wasn't really good. He would uh, work in the uh, marketing under uh, Carol Kalish in the uh, sales department. He would eventually succeed her in the position. Now, Carol Kalish is another uh, very interesting and very important like unsung hero in the industry. I believe Peter David actually named one of his children after. She was integral in getting cash registers into comic shops during the early days of the direct market. So you'd go into a comic shop, they'd have a shoebox with money. You know, they wouldn't have... A cash register. And she worked it out where Marvel uh, had deals with comic shops to get cash registers in the stores so they could actually... Maintain budgets and find out what's you know that what what kind of money they're actually making instead of uh, you know hoping it doesn't fall out of someone's pocket into someone else's pocket out of the out of the uh, little shoebox or whatever. Now Peter dave would try again with editor James Owsley, who we now know is Christopher Priest. He was editor of the Spider-Man books at the time, and uh, he finally, or not finally, he would just get the sale. Uh, his work appeared in Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man number 103, cover dated June 1985, and I feel his advice here is very well taken. It is very difficult for a writer to be noticed if you're an artist, a good, bad or, you know, somewhere in the middle and you go to a convention and you show your portfolio to an editor, they can see it right there in front of. them. So it's like, okay, we can tell that you can you can you can do poses. We can tell that you can do storytelling. We can tell that you have talent. When you're a writer and you're handing someone a stack of pages with text on it, how easy is it for that to get lost or forgotten about? Uh, you're not going to get an instantaneous reaction. You're not going to stand there over Peter David's shoulder while and like like guide him with your finger throughout <laughs> your your text, you know. So I. I I do feel that, you know, the writers have a much harder time, especially back here. I mean, there was no Internet, not, not not like it is now. It was hard. You couldn't do self-publishing without putting a lot of money into it. So you were left with just your words. And to to make yourself useful is really just some golden advice. I, I, that's how Scott Lobdell got his start. And he, you know, became the architect of the biggest franchise at Marvel Comics during the 90s due to it. Uh, it's it's very interesting stuff here. And actually, uh, Peter David would go on to publish a book called Writing for Comics and Graphic Novels with Peter David, and that came out through Impact Books in 2009. It also has uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney are in there. There are a few uh, independent uh, creators in there just giving advice. It's it's a really good book uh, that uh, if if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, it's, it's worth checking
1: out. Yeah, and if you want more Peter David, I mean, obviously, he's writing Spider-Man 2099. We're going through those books right now, and I, I loved his work there. But he he was recently on the Marvel Pull List podcast, and I don't listen to Marvel-produced podcasts. I'm less interested in current product. But when I saw his name there, I said, okay, I'm going to listen to this. And he shared some amazing stories because apparently there's a new kind of follow-up to the Death of Gene DeWolf storyline with Sin Eater and all this stuff. I don't think he's writing it, though, is he? No, he's not involved. So, But they were asking him about the original version
2: my favorite Spider-Man story. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. My favorite Spider-Man story ever. Yeah, it's good stuff.
1: And so he had several hilarious stories, but one in particular was he said that gene De Wolf had disappeared from Spider-Man comics for about a year before they actually wrote this storyline. Jim Alasly just said, "Hey, we want you to kill off gene De Wolf." He's like, "Okay," <laughs> and so they did. And all of a sudden, they're getting all these letters in, like, "She was my favorite character. How could you?" And he's like, <laughs> "I don't recall for the year that she was missing people writing in letters." say, where's Jean DeWolf? Why don't you put her in a story? She's my favorite character. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty hilarious. But, you know, you mentioned uh, the independence there, the writers, and in an editorial letter, a guest editorial, there's a writer-artist named Leah Hernandez, who provides advice from her, quote, seven-year career in comics as to how to start off strong. So again, there's a lot of information here for people excited about getting into the world of comics. So her tips included accepting advice from veterans. Veterans. don't think they're just all bitter and bossy get everything in writing especially your pay rate a revelation that some people who have no authority may promise you work <laughs> and uh, th- those projects will never materialize and finally sometimes you're just not good enough yet now, this is what was interesting, too, is that she went on to work for Marvel in DC and DC and did various books. She did a, a project with Gail Simone and a couple other things. But uh, she was briefly a guest editor at Wizard in 1993, and she started writing, like, their manga and anime columns. And so I went and did a little more research and found an interview where she said she was there for a while, and then she left because the editor wanted her to cover Akira, But the final issue had been, like, delayed for years and just wasn't being released. And she Mm -hmm. was super stubborn about, I'm not going to review an incomplete series. So she just got basically let go. I was so belligerent about it. You know, she's like, I kind of regret that, but... But I'm curious, so for you, Michael, and uh, for you, Chris, uh, you talked about your artistic skills earlier, Chris. Like, did you ever have the dream of getting into comics yourself, writing or drawing? Oh, of course.
2: I think uh, so many of us do.
1: It's one of those things where. <laughs> It's like I,
2: I wish I was just a little bit more talented or a lot more talented, so I could, uh, so I could do it. You see these artists; it just looks effortless. Uh, the way that they're, they're just so skilled and so talented. Everything I do is a struggle. Uh, so I, I second guess every word I write, every line I draw. I just don't think I have the stomach for it. Is the thing. But yeah, growing up, I imagined myself, you know, drawing drawing the X-Men, writing the X-Men. You know, I had my own, you know, they had the X-Men gold and and blue. I had my own, like, X-Men red team with, like, Ninja mutants on it. It was just you know silly <laughs> stuff, but it was uh yeah that dream was always there. Uh, of course, nowadays it'd be a lot easier to put that dream into motion. Uh, I just think I'm, <laughs> I'm, past that stage right now, unfortunately. If I was growing up right now with all the technology and uh, and just the information delivery we have now, uh Lord only knows. But I, I came a little too soon, I
1: guess. And hey, Michael, I know that you just recently wrote a comic script for a class that I got to read. That was a lot of fun, but. Prior Prior to it being an assignment, did you ever endeavor to create your own comics?
0: All my life. I I can't draw a straight line with a ruler, but I could tell a story. And I always wanted to write for DC Comics. Like, what kid didn't say i want to write a superman story or i want a batman story like everybody wanted that or you know being a a misfit kid in the 90s who didn't want to write an x-men story absolutely without a doubt it's it's funny though something that chris mentioned that that um Or maybe you said it before about what Peter David said for advice for getting into comics. It's actually changed now. A lot of the independent companies nowadays don't want to see you submit a draft of a character either they own or somebody else owns. They want to see original stories because they don't want to be in trouble for copyright issues that you took one of their characters or someone else's characters and wrote a draft unlicensed to do so. It's very interesting.
1: That's changed in 20-some-odd years. Years or so 30 years almost see that was that was always me is I never had a dream I'm gonna draw spider-man or I'm gonna draw you know Green Lantern or whoever like it was always if it wasn't original I wasn't interested this is my character, you're gonna love my story and my version, even if it's a rip-off, you know, very much the Rob Liefeld method, you know, <laughs> and so, like, that That was kind of where I was at, I was like, no, no, it's original, yeah it, it is, uh, but yeah, I, I never wanted to write an existing character, no matter how much I love them it's like, no, you know, I do not have a, a great Tim Drake story in me, that's that's not the, the way my brain works, but moving on here, this is interesting because in our video game column, you know last time we talked about glenn rubenstein coming into the world of wizard with his column that is finally reviewing comic book related video games for so long since the beginning they've had video game articles and they were very very far away from anything that related to comics so here he is actually making the case that comics are tailor-made for video game developers to adapt and uh, chris this is my question for you were you much of a gamer were you at the arcade often were you playing on home consoles where did you live when it came to video games i always felt foolish at an arcade i always
2: felt like i was being ripped off I, I couldn't even if it was just a quarter i couldn't do it uh because i could because i wouldn't be able to take anything home with me when i spend money it needs to be on something tangible so i was uh and still am uh, a home console gamer for my entire life i guess yeah <laughs>
1: Okay, cool. Um uh, So now here, Glenn is mentioning certain games like Sega's Spider-Man. They had a Superman game from Sunsoft. There were X-Men games, you know, that were on the NES. There was Captain America and the Avengers for the Super Nintendo that was based on the arcade game. Punisher and Batman also uh, on the NES, as well as an adaptation of X-Mutants based on the comic book series. And I didn't believe that this game got made. Like, it was being reported here, they're making X-Mutants, but I looked it up on eBay. You can buy a copy of X-Mutants for the Sega Genesis, so it did come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm curious for you guys, what is your favorite comic book video game? Again, whether it was an arcade game or one that you played uh, endlessly on your home console. Do you have one, Chris?
2: Uh, Nowadays, it would probably be one of the Batman Arkham games. Those are, you know, not 90s, but uh, I think those have, like, finally gotten it right. They'll they'll take a lot of time. They're, they're pretty good. Uh, but, like, I remember playing the X-Men games. I was all excited for the X-Men games. They would have, like, you'd have a life bar, and you'd have, like, a mutant power bar, you know? So, like, if Cyclops would shoot his beams, it would, like, deplete, you know, the mutant power bar. With Wolverine, though, if you had the claws out, it would deplete his bar. And that always annoyed me. Because it's like, why why is that affecting his his mutant power? That's not his mutant power. Exactly. <laughs> if he falls into a pit and like is blown into pieces, then his mutant power can devolve a little bit while he comes back together. But uh, I remember just being so annoyed by all that stuff and uh, never really got into much of the games. I mean, that you know, growing up, video games were like a Christmas and birthday thing only. So if I was going to get a game, it was going to have Mario in it or it was going to be like a Final Fantasy game, you know? So it wasn't going to be X-Men 2 on the Genesis. It wasn't going to be the the death of Superman on, on the Super Nintendo. It was going to be something I could actually sink my teeth into.
0: How about you, Michael? So I second the Batman Arkham series. I've played all of them. I also really like the Batman Telltale series, which is kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of a game where you dictate what decisions Batman makes and various characters in the game make, which is a lot of fun. Those are really great games. If you go, if I go back a bit, I was a big fighting game guy. Like I loved Mortal Kombat and like the Tekken games. I remember when they had like the Marvel vs. Capcom game, and you could yeah. be like, you could play all the different Marvel characters. I loved playing Cyclops because you could just, like, be a noob and just button mash and just blast his optic blast out at somebody and wipe him out. You're like, oh, yeah, this is the character for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I remember, like, X-Men Children of the Atom before that, you know, just the plain only X-Men fighting game. Berserker Barrage! That always cracked me up. (laughs) For me though, like, when I, when I look at a comic book video game, I'm always like, okay, what is the greatest adaptation that says, yes, this is a comic book game, you know? And for me, what I loved absolutely was there was the Sega Spider-Man game arcade game, which is the one they ported to the Genesis. But it was amazing because it would, it would zoom in and zoom out. So like you would be like on a, a stage and Spider-Man, you know, they, they would do like little panels and you would have word balloons that would pop up and then like you would like scale a building and you would climb up and then it was when it was time to fight, it would zoom in. So that it was like a, you know, a game where you're just like punching and beating everybody up and it had like Venom. It had, it had like all these awesome villains in it. And even the way that the sprites and everything were rendering looked like a comic book. And so that was a game that interestingly enough, I first played at Disneyland at the arcade that used to be there and I just fell in love with it. So anytime I would go into an arcade and they had that Sega Spider-Man, I would just play it as long as I could. You know, now that we've talked about video games and X mutants, I feel like uh, time to move on to X traitors. So there is an article here by Pat McCallum who is sharing both his and the reader theories on who the X traitor is. So this is something that happened before the Executioner song, which is the big crossover happening at this point. Bishop shows up on the scene, and we actually reviewed an issue. I don't know if it's the first occurrence of him an x trader, but basically as soon as he sees gambit he starts freaking out and starts doing his own little detective work in his head and assumes that he is the x trader and wants professor x to scan his mind and all these things but chris you were reading the x Men books at this mm-hmm. time so i am curious to know what were your thoughts as this whole idea of the x trader was that like the main reason to be reading the books at that point hopefully we get some clues here and there
2: Oh, boy. That was one of the best things about the X-Men was the fact that you had these weird little mysteries and these dangling plot lines. I mean, that was something that the Claremont run is, is pretty notorious for. He would let subplots bubble for years, like literal years. And I think that's almost like a, uh, people use that kind of as a slight against him because, it, you know, it's like waiting so long for it to pay you off finally, but upon you know uh, revisiting these stories it's it's endearing because it shows so much forethought and the dedication to serial storytelling and i think a lot of people think that that went away when he went away and it didn't (laughs) you have stuff like the x-trader you have stuff like the third summer's brother you have the mystery of cable and strife you have these things that just bubble along and uh, the x-trader was I want to say the first one that I kind of went all in on. I mean, we would argue uh, we would (laughs) have the same conversations that they had in the books. Because Bishop, uh, he, Malcolm and Randall came back to the the present chasing Trevor Fitzroy. They got to an underground bunker. Uh, This is actually in the future before they came to the past. They're in an underground bunker that was occupied by the X-Men. And they find a video transmission from Jean Grey that says that they were betrayed by one of their own, but it's cutting out you know so the audio is not fluid so all the all the key points are missing and in order to solve this bishop goes to a future prison to drop fitzroy off and he sees someone called the witness who looks a hell of a lot like gambit so when he comes back to the present, sees gambit he thinks that he was behind the whole thing and i think a lot of us thought it was gambit because gambit was always presented as having this dark secret and of course he does have a dark secret it's just not this dark secret this is a the sort of thing where we were pretend we were like forensics detectives you know like combing every single issue trying to figure out what's what like i remember buying like the trading cards and you see like bishop's name unrevealed or you don't know what bishop's real name is and i had a friend who like found two random words in a comic and he's like this is his name i'm like what it's like his name is mikhail tavarish <laughs> i'm like where i'm like where do you get that from and it was Colossus talking about his brother Mikhail and calls one of the X-Men Tavarish, which is like, I think it's like brother or something in Russian or something along those lines. So he thought that Bishop's name was Mikhail Tavarish and no one could convince him otherwise. It just goes to show how deep you'd go uh, as an X-Fan to find the answers and you would find hints where there aren't any. This was a lot of fun. This is one of those things that we as, you know, young kids would hear the older kids talk about in the comic shop. And Like we would be like under their learning tree because they were there for the Claremont years. You know, they were there for the history and the Outback era and all that stuff uh, where we were, you know, neophytes we were brand new just a wonderfully fun thing it it, the story i mean the x trader storyline it won't get solved for about five or six years wow and we actually covered that the entire x trader storyline on the cosmic treadmill uh, episode 144 that was uh, in october of last year the second to last episode of the cosmic treadmill we did and we went through the entire thing and actually that was an episode that i wrote using only hard copy. I didn't use any internet research for that one. I used all magazines and the comics themselves and letters pages and uh, it was a, it was a very interesting exercise, but I wanted to experience it the way I would have experienced it back in the day, or I, I wanted to re-experience it the way I did originally, and I uh, had a lot of fun with it. It's a heck of a story. I don't know that it paid off uh, the way everybody wanted it to, and I, I won't ruin it for people in case we're keeping this spoiler free, but it did pay off, which is something We can't say for a lot of the stories.
1: Yeah, well, and I'll tell you guys I mean, again, every episode of Chris and Reggie's cosmic treadmill find the feed on your favorite podcast app it is worth visiting you will be amazed by the details that come out so that you can either experience for the first time or like Chris said re-experience for yourself the fun and the details of all that just like we try to do here but Chris I mean honestly right now at this point we know that Cable apparently just shot Professor X to kick off Executioner's song doesn't that Ooh. basically mean that he is the X-Trader I mean mystery solved it's, it's right there in front of us
2: well gene gray asked for cable in that audio recording so (laughs) hmm. i I wonder if there's a guy who looks like cable out there maybe maybe there's two two.
0: he is a time traveler and he you know there could be more than one of them at at any given time
2: body slide by one yeah
0: they're doing that right now in x-men as well believe it or not that is true there's young cable and old
1: cable
2: Cable. young cable came back and killed old cable
1: yeah (laughs) ah he got what he deserved how do you like that cable it'll taste your own medicine this is for the
2: executioner song you fool yeah
0: (laughs) this brings us to heroes in motion On a past podcast, Chris revealed that he had not seen any of the Marvel movies. Is this for real? This is 100% true. Meaning any of the MCU,
1: Sam Raimi,
0: Spider-Man movies? Nope. The the Fantastic Four movies? Uh Uh-uh. Really? Not
2: even the X-Men.
0: Not even the
2: X-Men. I I will not see.
1: So explain to us the philosophy, Chris.
2: You know, I, I told I talked earlier about throwing tantrums. It's something I do. Uh, I uh, I feel like the movies to comics is a one way street. I feel like as comics readers, we are more accepting of there being adaptations in movie form, and we'll go and see them, and we'll support them. The people who come in from the movies couldn't give a rat's ass about the comics, uh, and there's there's nothing that anyone will say that'll make them care about the comics, and they know they don't even have to accept the fact that there are comics. So. If we say, well, that's not how it happened in the comics, they say, who cares? Your comics don't matter. Whereas if they say that something in the comic didn't happen in the movie, they can also disregard that. I'm not a fan of that sort of thing. I'm not a fan of people claiming to be experts on something that they've dedicated two hours to instead of 30 years. Not my scene. Not my scene. If people dig it, and people clearly do, that's fine. Very much in the minority here, and I'm okay with that.
0: I I just can't do it. I I can understand what you're saying. So I know somebody in the last two years or so, two or three years, has sleeved out tattoos on both of his arms of all the different Batman characters and villains and heroes and this and that on one arm. The other arm is all Marvel stuff, yada, yada, yada. And then Mm -hmm. when I like wanted to talk to him about Hush, for example, or Chris Claremont's run on X-Men. He goes, I don't read the comics. I just love the movies. I'm like, then why would you put the comic version of those characters on your arms? <laughs> like, to be there forever. He's like, I, yep. I, it looks cool. But you don't even know what, you don't that, care- care. You know what that character <laughs> is. And, and and that bummed me out because I was like, alright. like I thought his tattoos were really cool and I was like, wow, I'm really impressed by it. I was like, oh, this guy must love comics. And He's like, no, I like the movies. I'm like, but, you know, you've got characters on your arms that have never appeared in a movie before. Like,
1: I, like I don't get it. Yep.
2: You have Wolverine, not Hugh Jackman on your arm.
1: Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's crazy because when I think about it, you know, this is this is a much bigger topic. But, you know, if the movies were truly meant to celebrate the comics and get people to to check out the source material, we would be in another renaissance right now. Comics would be as big again as they were in the 90s. But back in the 90s, the difference was it literally was about the comics. The comics were selling millions of copies. It wasn't the movies based on the comics earning billions of dollars. And so it just, it doesn't translate back.
2: It's true. And I, and I can't even blame the people who go to see the movies because even if, say, one out of a thousand thousand of the people to see the movies wants to go to a comic store. They're inspired to go to a comic book store. Say they saw the Avengers and they want to go into the store and buy an Avengers comic. What in the hell are they going to buy? They're going to go in there, ask for the Avengers, and gonna say, well, which ones?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, what about the ones with the... Well, we don't have that one here. Uh, it's like uh, the Falcon is Captain America, uh, Jane Foster's Thor, or you can have this other team of the Avengers that has nobody that you know on them. And then even if, even if you do happen to find one that has your team, you're going to pay four to five bucks on 16 to 18 pages a comic when you just paid, you know, 15 to see a, a movie and, and got, a, got a complete story. I mean, it's it's hard. It's very hard. I can't blame it all on fans not wanting to get into comics because we make it very difficult to get into comics.
0: So it's it's a it's a funny little thing that you say that there. So like we have a lot of friends that have sons and daughters that are of the age of of reading, every one of them calls me, oh, you know, my son loves Spider-Man, my my daughter loves Supergirl, what books can I get them, or what should I, you know, look for, and it's hard to find a book that would be true to the character for an eight-year-old to read or a nine-year-old to read, I'm like, yeah, oh, sure, I could tell you a Spider-Man book, but you you don't want your eight-year-old to read it, because it's going to be a little too scary for them, and it's, it's funny, because the idea of who they're visualizing for those characters are the movie adaptations of them, which is great. I mean, it makes me happy when I see a kid wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt or whatever, but it's hard for the parents to dive into it too, and I tend to be Teaching their kids about the origins of their characters that these kids love, which is pretty funny.
1: All right, Michael, well, tell us what Andy Mangles has to say about what was going on in '92.
0: Insiders tell Andy Mangels that Steven Spielberg's Plastic Man film is an almost definite go for the summer of '93 release. Yeah, that's a stretch. A uh, yuck. <laughs> It's funny. I could never see Steven Spielberg doing a superhero movie, especially Plastic Man. It's just such an obscure character that it doesn't seem like it fits into his purview of storytelling.
1: I feel like that's the story I would be asking him about if I ever sat down in front of him and be like, so, Plastic Man? Really? Where were you going to go with that? And or Rob Liefeld's Dooms 4, which he claimed to have been speaking to you about. You know, like, I want to know the behind the scenes there, Stephen. Yes, everything else, great job, but lay it <laughs> out for me. So,
0: we eventually got a big budget Doctor Strange movie, but at this time... We had to settle for a bootleg copy of a 70s TV movie or the ripoff, Dr. Mordred, from the Full Moon Studios being released this time. It is available to view now on the Tubi app, and you can go over to past guest and friend of the show, Stephen, and he can actually show you a VHS copy of it in his house if you want to
1: watch it. <laughs> so i watched like the first half hour of this movie on tubi and it is hilarious because it actually says in the credits based on an original idea and i was like what? the sorcerer supreme who defends our realm that's the original idea huh <laughs> so
0: Femforce force the movie is announced to be in production through an undisclosed network could that have been the Playboy Channel or Cinemax, bom, bom, bom. that's the only place for a cheesecake series to be acceptable.
1: Do you know about FemForce, Michael?
0: I've heard the term FemForce. I don't remember much about it, but I do, I've do. i heard the term before.
1: It's not A-Force for Marvel. That was the, the all-female team, right? This is kind of the exact opposite of a female empowerment book. Um, <laughs> of course <laughs> it Busty- is busty babes and skin tight or tiny outfits punching each other i remember somehow i ended up with femforce pogs in the 90s that i got <laughs> from like my comic book shop so i had like three or four of them and i'm like i don't know who these characters are yes they are very attractive but <laughs> then i started seeing the comics so i was like what <laughs> like i don't think i'm allowed to buy these they just have them out in the open but yeah <laughs> Uh, this is before, it was kind of like pre-Bad Girl phase, I feel
0: like. Things that should have stayed in the 90s, and thankfully they did, didn't make it out. Oh boy. So, Time Cop, based on the segments found in Dark Horse Presents, is being developed into a film. But currently, there is no mention of Van Damme being attached just yet speaking of van damme and i'm going to go back to time cop in a minute but speaking of van damme there is a wizard news blurb about a live action street fighter 2 movie being filmed in japan which is definitely not true as the film we eventually got from universal studios in 1994 was filmed almost completely in canada with a bit of shooting done in australia and thailand so first of all of van damme movies Time Cop is my favorite. I love Time Cop. I love that movie. And when we get to that point and it's popped up in Wizard, we might talk all night about Time Cop and Van Damme. (laughs) Just buckle up for that one. Now, the strange thing about this is the Street Fighter 2 thing, they hadn't even made a Street Fighter 1 movie yet. How could they make a Street Fighter (laughs) 2 before they do Street Fighter 1? That's very confusing. I don't know. We'll dive into that at some other point, I'm sure. The script for a movie based on the... Paul Chadwick's concrete comic, co-written by the creator, is finished and now moves into eternal damnation in development hell at Largo Entertainment, never to be produced. I don't know what Concrete is. I have never heard of this.
1: Oh, it it is a beautiful series. If you ever happen to to get access to these stories, I have several collected editions that I was lucky enough to find at a a used bookstore here that I'm sure Chris knows well, Bookman's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I I have these, they're kind of these oversized collections and they're just fantastic uh, stories that are not superhero books per se. It's it's kind of more a, a personal study. Of what if your brain got put into the body of a giant concrete alien, and then how do you go about just living your life?
0: One step at a time, I guess.
1: <laughs>
0: Flaming Carrot by Bob Burden is supposedly being developed into a postmodern film, and though it never happens, a superhero comedy that did make it into theaters. Mystery Man was also based loosely on a Bob Burden comic, so he does make it into Hollywood eventually.
1: Flaming Carrot, Michael. You read some Flaming Carrot? Uh,
0: no. Never read Flaming Carrot. Never heard of it. (laughs) Bizarre and hilarious. I'm sure. I'm sure you guys have read it. It doesn't surprise (laughs) me.
1: Yeah, I actually have a couple Flaming Carrot collections. I got some trades, I got some individual issues, and a Mystery Man comic, comic and mystery man is just unrecognizable oh yeah you you wouldn't see any relation there other than the name and the loose concept i guess
0: really i'm su- i'm surprised by that because that those are some pretty obscure characters in that movie that i'm i'm surprised that mystery man is is so different from the comic but <laughs> i mean what was that movie came out a few years ago with uh with james mcavoy and angel oh, jolie uh wanted. wanted i mean i read that graphic novel and that
1: movie is totally
0: unrecognizable to the book it's
1: like his dad was a guy who shot people with magic bullets yeah that's the only thing they took from it, that's <laughs> it.
0: That's literally it so news that british comic tank girl is being turned into a film gets a small paragraph and an even smaller reception upon its eventual release. This was a movie that I remember it coming out in the theaters, and I was like, "Isn't that the girl from A League of Their Own?" And she's yep. in Tank Girl. I was like, <laughs> "Oh,
1: I don't know." Oh, Larry I... Petty. People, people don't like Kangaroo Mutants played by Ice T. I, I guess not. No. That one didn't have legs. But
0: I've heard they're trying to reboot it and do it again in another movie at some point. I've heard a few times here and there. Finally, Bob is a new sitcom starring Bob Newhart as a Bronze Age comic book artist brought back into the grim and gritty world of the modern age for a reboot of his character Mad Dog. Andy Mangels promises a report Of the set visit next issue, it's also announced that Marvel is producing an actual Mad Dog comic as a tie-in to the TV series, and Adam bought the entire run. (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying that, but it does not surprise me.
1: As soon as I read that such a thing existed, I had to find it. I was just like, really? And how far did they take this?
0: This this, this is where you, like, if if we were a video podcast you'd cue the like gif of a of a cat kick clicking the keyboard on a, on a laptop it's like <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, what is crazy about this though is they really did an innovative fun thing because on the tv series chris i i believe that you recall this series is that right oh yeah i'm a huge
2: bob newhart fan uh, i think newhart the show from the 80s uh in, based in vermont i think i think that's a uh, one of the funniest sitcoms ever to be put on tv it's it's wonderful stuff bob newhart's great i'll, I'll pretty much watch anything with him in it this was not
0: great <laughs>
1: This yeah, was, uh, it's, it's, it's very uneven. It's, it, it's, it, is it a it is. boring, generic family sitcom, or is it a yeah. workplace sitcom? It, yeah. They couldn't decide.
2: Yeah, because it, even, it like almost reminded me of, uh, what was it, Too Close for Comfort, where the guy who played Ted Baxter on Mary Talamore, who was a cartoonist, and he and he drew comics with like a cow puppet on his hand. Yeah. I think this might have been worse than that.
1: If it had Jim J. Bullock, this version would have been much better. Oh, it better, would have been I'll forgiven. It would have been forgiven. Oh! It would have been forgiven.
0: It's fun. like, I mean, this was also in the time of shows like Murphy Brown, which were all these like work based type of shows that were coming out. And it made sense to do it. But this didn't they didn't know what to do with this show. And it kind of also felt a little bit like a knockoff of that show. Dear John. And like with Judd Hirsch. With Judd Hirsch. Right. That's right. And it didn't know what to do with it. I remember watching the first couple of episodes. I was like, oh, cool. It's about a comic book artist. But I think we've mentioned this in a previous episode. Bob Newhart is great but for people to watch it when you have a a, a guy in his uh, the twilight of his career it didn't translate to the audience that they were trying to go for as a target market i think and that's why it didn't take off if they had you know some somebody younger maybe in their like 30s or 40s who's trying to like break in it would have been a different type of a show i think
1: yeah, and I mean, because the, the premise of it essentially is that there's a, a publisher, Ace Comics, and they have a new hotshot editor who says, like, we're taking Mad Dog, this character you created, and we're updating him for the 90s. He's hyper-violent and he rips people to shreds. And then Bob Newhart as Bob McKay is like, no, no, you won't do that to my character. You have to hire me and I will shepherd the Mad Dog book. So what they did with the Marvel comic is it is a literal compromise between Bob McKay and this editor of his named Harlan. Inside the comic, there were fake internal memos where Harlan says I have a great idea we'll do a flip book so you can do your version and I'll do my version so what you have is there's one cover that it looks like basically a 60s comic book and a really goofy you know he has a sidekick named Buddy who is just you know a Robin type and everything and so they kind of get into these goofy sci-fi adventures then you flip the book and it's a total like you know shaggy long haired guy with claws with you know a five o'clock shadow look at all intense and he's you know got this mystery around him he doesn't remember his history they eventually reveal that he was in a weapon X type uh, experiment where they basically like crossed him with dog genes and so he has the abilities of a dog and so like it's hard to say I'm pretty sure Marvel is essentially mocking their own output of 90s you know tough guy comics with that version but yeah so it's like each book it flips back and forth and you get to see how the different visions progress and so it's it's kind of interesting it's actually uh, Evan Dorkin he writes and draws the first 90s story and then he just writes the rest of them a different penciler comes in but I've never seen Evan Dorkin not draw in like a super stylized cartoony type of art and so this is just like generic Marvel art of the 90s and I was just like wow this is pretty interesting but the person who's also involved in this uh, Bob Comic book series is somebody who is very connected to the world of comics, and that's Mark Evanier. Is that how you say it, Chris?
2: Vanier, Evanier, or one of those. Now, one more thing about uh, Evan Dorkin—he did something for Marvel called Fight Man, which is worth checking out. It's it's very sure. interesting. It's uh, it's probably 1993-ish. 1993 had some weird Marvel books. You had like Mort, the Dead Teenager. you, you had Fight Man. Had a one shot, and it's a uh, it looks it looks a lot like his work on that Mad Dog comic. It's very. 90s marvel it, it's it's pretty funny stuff but uh yes uh comics legend mark avania or avania he wrote episode 17 of season one of bob which might be just about the only episode <laughs> worth watching the episode is called the man who killed Ned dog and it refers to a senate subcommittee hearing on the moral value of comic books which if you're a fan of comics history that might sound a little familiar now if you'd like a blow-by-blow of the actual 1954 senate subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquencies which uh this is obviously a reference to you can check out the first five episodes of weird comics history uh, where reggie and i discussed uh for about eight to ten hours we discussed the establishment of the comics code authority and how uh that boogeyman the big bad wolf uh frederick wortham wasn't actually the big bad of that story He wasn't the devil that you've been uh, trained to believe he is. He's not a great guy, and he did have a hand in it, but he wasn't uh, necessarily the straw that stirred that drink. Uh, Now, more on Mr. Vanier. Now, he was a uh, production assistant to Jack Kirby And he would become one of the foremost authorities On the King's body of work Uh, He's a prolific and award-winning comic book writer He would serve as uh, Sergio Aragonis' interpreter For Grew the Wanderer This is uh, during a time where Sergio Was still becoming fluent in English Now, in addition to this episode of Bob uh, He wrote many a television show Including The McLean Stevenson Show And Welcome Back, Kata Which also got a short run at DC Comics As a uh, comic book Now, uh, also for animated projects He did Garfield and Friends, Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, the Plastic Man comedy adventure show, maybe getting it ready for Steven Spielberg to do something. (laughs) Thundar the Barbarian, uh, which is, you know, a Kirby thing, actually. Uh, The Berenstain Bears, uh, spelled stain, not steam. Richie Rich and Dungeons and Dragons, which was a a fun Saturday morning series back in the 80s.
1: Yeah, he had his hand in a lot of great stuff. For sure. I remember he had his own, like, independent comic book called Alter Ego. Yeah, and it was also, like, DNA agents uh,
2: he did. uh, He did, like, a whole... uh, uh, dn agent's universe like crossfire and boy it was either first or eclipse or something i uh, wanted one of the uh, <laughs> one of the indie boomers of the 80s yeah he's a uh, very prolific uh, he did a run on new gods uh, after uh, kirby's hunger dogs he had his hands in a lot of pies
1: now that we've seen all the excitement going on in hollywood let's go over to the toy store we're gonna enter azrael's action figure fury By way of follow-up, Brian Cunningham admits that his information about a short-packed Max Shrek from Batman Returns action figure was false. But, then he goes on to provide an answer to the mystery of why Catwoman is not featured on the back of the Batman Returns figure packaging, which I had never paid attention to or realized, and I grabbed my transforming Bruce Wayne figure and flipped it over, and sure enough, there is no little square with Catwoman in it. Now Brian is claiming that it's because Kenner spent extra time on the sculpt, and thus a prototype wasn't ready to photograph by the time they printed up the cards, which seems logical, but he's not referencing anybody. He's not stating he spoke to Kenner. So to me I'm kinda like, uh ah, you just putting pieces together again based on your assumption. <laughs> Did you ever notice that, Michael, in your collecting? You're like, where's Catwoman on the back?
0: You know, I noticed it recently when I looked at a couple of different boxes I was like wait a minute it doesn't make any sense it's 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 peculiar I don't know why that is but now I know so there you go look at that now
1: Brian also reports that a reader named Ricky L Ross I don't know if it's Rick Ross from Houston Texas claims to have spoken to a rep from Toy Biz who stated that due to poor sales of the Storm action figure by Toy Biz they won't be producing any more female X-Men action figures now my rogue Phoenix and psylocke figures from just a, a year or two later say otherwise but chris you mentioned earlier you are a big collector of those x-men figures uh mm-hmm. what could you say about the female figures were they one of your favorites what, what's on your mind
2: uh, this a uh, female figure ban rumor was another one of those big discussions among uh, me and my friends here i remember nobody wanted the storm figure <laughs> i mean it was one of the first ones i ever got I, I got Storm and Nightcrawler at a, a store called Cheap John's uh, on Long Island. I don't know. I know
0: Cheap John's very well. Yes. <laughs> okay, very, cool. I, very I, cool. I frequented a Cheap John's here and there in the 80s and 90s. It is a defunct Big Lots, but uh, that's where I got my my Storm and
2: Nightcrawler action figures. And the Storm figure, it, it kind of sucked. You couldn't stand it up. She would do a split, kinda. So like, it was really hard to stand her up. I remember though, everybody wanted an Invisible Woman figure because that one was out. Uh, that was part of the just the Marvel Universe series. That was the one that everybody was looking for, and that was the one that everyone was thinking was going to go up in value. Uh, Storm was a peg warmer, though. We thought it was odd when suddenly there were other female figures popping up in shops. We had the rogue figure, of course, Psylocke, Phoenix, the the rogue repaint into Polaris. You know, all those figures popped up. So uh, I think uh, Ricky needs to, to show his work here.
1: Give us a name, Rick! Who did yes. you speak to? <laughs>
2: because for a little while, I was a rep hasbro toys and they didn't
0: tell us any of that kind of stuff i don't know about for everybody but there was also a stigma in the early 90s that if if a boy wanted a female superhero action figure it was like at least for my friends why would you have a you know rogue action figure or storms like i don't know it's it's a cool character if you watch the animated series they'd look at you funny because it was just that was kind of the the stigma then it was almost like emasculating which nowadays it's like i i have so many female superhero figures a for my myself and be for my children to you know look at oh look there's heroes that are more than just Captain America out there you know and it was a different time back that's why they would kind of be a peg warmer at times
1: yeah speaking of the invisible woman Michael so our dear friends
0: over at the Retro Network Jason sent me this amazing care package at first that I didn't know what was in it because it had all these Batman stickers all over the box and I opened it and inside was a slew of Batman Batmobile hot wheels cars but in that as well was a invisible woman action figure of back then
1: he actually got that 90s original invisible woman everybody was clamoring for there chris so he's got it mint in box
0: i i will take a picture of it and we'll put it up on our instagram later this week so you guys can all see it in all of its glory it's i was so shocked when i opened it i was like whoa, whoa. I, I don't even know if i should deserve to have this thing it was it was crazy i was like whoa all right Michaels, let's dive into Guy Gardner's Gimmicks a Go How 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 Go. As part of the collecting comics in the 90s feature, Wizard reveals the truth about the randomly shipped Greyhull Wizard cover, of which under 7,000. Exist. And Adam finally snagged a copy for very cheap on eBay for our wizard's archive.
1: How did you even find that? <laughs> Scouring. I, I keep an eye out for this. And, you know, because we talked about it recently when we were doing the quiz, right? And that mm-hmm. was one of that was an option that you could choose as a prize if you won the quiz. You guys were all about the other prize. I'm like, no, no, no. I want that gray Hulk cover of wizard number six. They've all blurred I've actually together got the gray a- one, too. Oh, really? I just dug
2: it off the shelf. I've got the Grey Hulk too. I had no idea.
1: Oh, that's awesome. You two sound like you were separated at birth or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, we were separated by a grocery store oh yeah and we should mention that so before i moved chris and i literally were like less than a mile away from each other yep. and we didn't know it till we connected online <laughs> and i had already moved and i was like wait a minute so like all this time you know we could have been uh meeting at the comic store and having these chats in person we probably so.
2: were at the same comic store at the same time several it's times and then you realize <laughs>
0: So my wife and I traveled in the same circle of friends. We lived in different towns, but there were many occasions over about twenty years where we were at parties together high school graduations together, Sweet Sixteens, weddings even, and we never met until years and years later when my cousin said, hey, you should meet this girl. You might like her. And then we were like, wait a minute, how do you know all these people? And we ended up being in the same place. There's actually a picture of her with my cousin at a Sweet Sixteen, and my arm is cut off from the photo, and it's in the photo. (laughs) (laughs) The most bizarre thing ever. Anyway, so we'll go back to our guy Gardner's givics a go-go. The Jab Anthology comic by Adhesive Comics, another company I've never heard of, becomes the first to feature an actual bullet hole through the comic with each tenth copy ordered featuring powder burns. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Sorry, Malibu, with your bullet hole issue in Protectors number no. 5 from January of 93. Jeb beat you to the punch.
2: <laughs> but they didn't actually use a punch.
0: They did they not. They actually used
2: real guns <laughs> to make these holes. Uh, 3,000 copies of Jab Number no. 3 were produced, and it took the folks at Adhesive Comics three days to shoot them all. And I'm guessing they did it in stacks of 10, since the 10th copy had powder burns. <laughs> now, there were standard editions that were shot with a twenty two, special editions that were shot with a 9mm, a super special and unreadable version that was shot with a shotgun, <laughs> then shoved in a poly bag, and priced at $20. Um,
0: oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but the, So the funny thing about that is, even though if you were to get it graded, obviously it's got a bullet hole in it, because each one would have shot through slightly different even if you shot a 22 or 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 a nine millimeter right on top of the top stack the way they blow through each book will fray the pages differently that would make each book almost unique in itself and would stand alone which is kind of interesting that they all have value and the way the bullet hole would blow through it is kind of interesting that's fascinating
2: especially with uh, considering that they they tried to make it so the resulting bullet hole was incorporated into the story wow so like the whole was going to be part of the story in some form or fashion, and and like you said here, I mean they, it's going to be very difficult to get it to be in the exact same spot throughout. You know, who knows how thick these books were, and uh, to have a stack of ten of them, I mean, who can say? But uh, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting gimmick.
0: Yeah, I mean. Could a 22 even get through 10 issues? That's be interesting. I don't know. But, so finally, Robin 3, Cry of the Huntress number one, is out this month with a motion cover in an attempt to top the hologram cover gimmick from the Robin 2 miniseries. Cool ad for this miniseries featuring just a close up of the Robin insignia on his uniform. I've never heard of this story. What? I've never really? heard uh, really I, I've never heard of this one and I'm a huge Huntress fan and a huge Tim Drake fan so now I have to find this story somewhere because I didn't I didn't know this existed I, I only knew of Robin 2 I didn't know there was a Robin 3 story after that
1: oh yeah I, I mean I I bought the first issue back in the day it was all polybagged and it came with a poster and it's all a big deal and I, I you know I lost it over the years but I was just in a comic shop yesterday I was out traveling trying to find the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles musical Mutant Engine Tour San Diego Comic-Con exclusive that was supposed to be at Target. I drove five hours, six hours. I went to Las Vegas. I went to Utah. I went everywhere. There's not in stores. Then I tried to buy it online and of course it sold out in 36 seconds. My consolation prize was digging through a bargain bin and pulling out Robin 3 Cry the Huntress Part 3 of 6 <laughs> with the motion <laughs> cover on it.
2: Had you ever tried reading? one of these things like crinkled like crazy when you tried to read them they were so uncomfortable to hold
1: yeah the piece like just slips through the yep. front of the cover and so it's not like a thick cardstock or anything mm-hmm. it's like not even a standard yeah it's rough <laughs> not pleasant so let's dive into robin todd's hype machine
0: As all of you guys know, this is my favorite segment other than, you know, the, the babe of the month, obviously. But Market Watch feature mentions in relation to Image Comics that store owners and fans alike have expressed a great dissatisfaction with the constant delays in almost all of their books, but that on the whole, the aftermarket value of Image Comics has been positive with the Image Month editions that contain redeemable coupons experiencing stronger sales. I was talking to my comic book shop guy today at Bailey's Comics in Long Island because they have the Three Jokers coming out soon, and... DC is making customer making shops buy at least 50 copies of each cover and there are 5 covers so small comic book shop has to buy 50 copies of each cover to get one of the exclusive ones as well and, and mix into the it's like the craziest thing he's like, he's like i I he's like i'll sell them because it's going to be a hot book but he's like it's so much out of pocket for these shops to have to buy these things it's crazy i was like i was shocked i was i was bummed out by that too but that's totally another conversation for another day but a reader named eric How do you say this, Adam? Good luck, Figston, I think. Yeah, I'm going to say Figston. The P is silent. Yeah, definitely, the (laughs) the P is silent. Writes in a letter stating, Is it just me, or did anyone else notice that the only Image comic to come out during Image Comics Month was Shadowhawk? Are the guys at Image ever going to get a book out on time? Wizard answers, There are some things even Wizard can't answer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Should should we even talk about how Wetworks number one is listed as the top book on the top one hundred, even though it won't actually come out for two more years?
1: Ugh. Yeah, well, and they have a solicitation I think for issue number two. Yep. already, yeah, we didn't even get number one yet, so didn't yeah. come
2: out until
0: nineteen ninety four.
1: Crazy. So this may be the
0: lowest number of mentions for Robin Todd throughout the last sixteen issues that we've gotten. But with only two mentions each, bringing Rob's total to 95 and Todd's to 88. That's crazy that there's only two. And I started thinking about this. I'm like, I think both Wizard and the comic book fans are getting a little bit tired of Image because they're promoting this stuff so much, but the readers are not getting the content that they are hoping to be fulfilled by in the stores because of all the delays and everything which is very interesting i I think we're going to see over time a a rapid fall off of all of this image promotion and goes back to marvel and dc i think that's going to happen in the not too distant future in my mind uh speaking of hype valiant is getting plenty of ink in wizard so it's time to review bloodshot number
1: one it's time for robin's reading rainbow so uh bloodshot number one gets the top spot and picks from the wizard's hat with Superman number 75, which features the death of Superman getting second billing. Like, it's it's the next Yikes. one, but it's a tidy half a page, and there's, like, one ad for the death of Superman, Doomsday is Coming, and then there's, like, one other ad for somebody selling a Death of Superman collection, but Wizard does not have an article about it. They're not talking about it in any detail. It is still baffling to me. Like, they were so down on DC and so up on Valiant and in that they're not even going to acknowledge it even with like all the major dc books this month essentially are featuring tie-ins to the death of superman and the funeral for a friend story all that stuff so it, it's pretty insane that uh, you know third in the line is pit number one like we mentioned plus all the x books are still in the middle of the executioner song crossover also doom 2099 number one is listed as well which i will be covering during the 2099 hotline on the next mini episode hope you guys all enjoy my uh, in-depth coverage of Ravage 2099 last time, so now it's time to get into what many consider to be the best book in that line. So we shall see. But Chris, tell us a little bit about how excited Wizard was getting about Bloodshot Number One.
2: Boy, you know, I, I think I have a problem being concise, but uh, looking at this solicitation and review here, it, it kind of puts me to shame. Now, Bloodshot Number One, artist Don Perlin, writer Kevin Van Hook, even though they don't give him a first name here. Release date November. Cover price three fifty. As those of you wise enough to pick up a copy of Rye No. 0 and actually read it already know, Bloodshot was released from his capture by a Japanese conglomerate, courtesy of Gregory, the Geomancer. He was originally a mafia strong guy with a crazy side, so fearing he was a loose cannon, the mob sold him out to the government. The government, in turn, transferred his rights, so to speak, to the aforementioned Japanese conglomerate. The world power wanted to start an army consisting of experimental soldiers who, because they have computer microchips injected into their bloodstream, would be so. Subject to follow every program demand of their captors jeffrey knowing that the original blood coursing through bloodshot's veins would later have vast future implications interrupts the experiment and bloodshot is born thanks to the infusion his abilities as a mercenary are heightened and he begins his quest to take down those who sold him out and to avoid the Japanese who want their guinea pig back. This title will certainly take on more of a Punisher-type theme, giving all you violence lovers out there something to really sink your teeth into. This blazing first issue will sport a Barry Windsor Smith cover and a fold-out poster. To top everything off, this issue will have the first ever Chromium cover. And from the samples we've seen, this one's spectacular. Altogether,
1: ooh, ah. Yes, indeed. So, we mentioned last episode that there was an ad announcing Bloodshot is the world's first Chromium cover, right? And what's interesting, though, is that in the letter from our publisher, Garab reveals that issue 15 supposedly had 1,000 Chromium Bloodshot cards randomly inserted into them. Mine wasn't bagged, so I didn't know that. So doesn't that mean that Wizard was actually the first publisher to release a Chromium product before Valiant got Bloodshot number one on the shelves? And even the Wizard's Crystal Ball featured describes chromium saying it's colored and embossed foil so it's like a cross between silver sable number one and a guardians of the galaxy number 25 type cover you know everybody was excited about this new chromium in fact Kevin Van Hook who was the writer of the book in his foreword that's part of this uh, valiant masters trade collection of the bloodshot series he mentions that you see I was still the production manager and we were using this new process Process for creating enhanced covers for our books, it was called Chromium. And the factory that invented it was in northern San Diego County, so because of my printing background, I was out there making sure it went well. After all, this was going to be a big book for us. A side effect was that, like with any new technology, there was a downtime while we worked out the bugs. And then he talks about how he actually was writing the issue. He had extra time to write it, so he was on a beach in San Diego <laughs> just kinda and just kind of enjoying himself and writing out the plot and everything like that so yeah bloodshot here now most people nowadays probably know him as the only valiant character to get a full big budget feature film recently starring the one and only vin diesel it was one of the last movies really i feel like that was released in theaters before coronavirus so yeah bloodshot man i mean that's a a name that maybe people will remember now because of the movie it's hard to say but what do you guys think about this comic did it deliver on that promise of a punisher style violence
2: yeah the solicitor did not lie
1: (laughs) (laughs) opening panel shot through the head It's definitely
0: a, a Punisher esque kind of a story, as valiant comics go. I do like Bloodshot as a character. I think it's a very interesting story, and I was bummed that the movie literally dropped the weekend. America and the rest of the world more or less shut down, and they tried to rehash it by putting it out out on VOD. But I don't know if it really made the return on investment that it could have, unfortunately, because it was looked like a cool movie.
1: I didn't see it. Yeah, because it was like twenty bucks, and I was gonna see it in theaters, and then I was like, but I where I go to the movies i don't have to pay 20 bucks for a single ticket and nobody in my family is gonna watch this with me (laughs) so now it's gone down in price because it's not a new release you guys can check it out for like 5.99 on amazon or whatever but yeah hopefully uh it's not too bad the basic premise is solid where you basically have a guy who has this uh, magical blood of heroes as they called it in the valiant universe infused into him which allows him to both heal quickly because he has nanites in his blood that it repair him, and also the nanite robots can speak to technology. And uh, I think the best and most nineties use of that is that he goes on this mission and he ends up with this disc of information. And it, they're like, "What's that? A CD-ROM?" And then they're like, "Do you have a computer that you can play that?" And he's like, "No, but I could put it into my CD player, and my nanites will work on it from there." You know, so it's like, "Wow, that's awesome." <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Just put the disc in your CD player, then you can read it with your computer blood. Very awesome bloodshot. But what what did you guys think just in general about the world that they were trying to set up for him?
2: I, I think for what it was, which felt like something i would have written when i was like 10 um <laughs> it, it, it had surprising depth for something that on its face violent i mean like you said first panel we've got heads blowing up and there might have been a gunshot on every single page of this book <laughs>
0: and and a, and it's just a cloud of blood i did a gunshot count i was, cause I was so surprised there was so much it's yeah there's oh at least boy, a...
2: <laughs> and i and they they put so much work into the cover here but i i've always had a problem with valiant's
0: art right you know it always feels so cheap the interior art of this book doesn't do it as much justice as the cover. And sometimes Valiant does a good job nowadays, but back then it's hit or miss. And I, I was surprised by that. I thought they were really good to come out of the gate strong all the way through.
2: Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. I, for sure. And but the art inside of a Valiant comic, it always appeared to me to be very, very cheap. I didn't like the sort of it's not quite watercolors, but it has like a watercolor sort of feel to it. Like when you see these heads exploding, like it doesn't look like it's a pile of blood. It looks like it's a cloud of blood coming out of their heads. It looks very plumy, you know. I'm reminded of like, you know, the old Charlton comics from like the, uh, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s. Those were printed on like old cereal box printing presses. That's why they
0: looked so crappy. So, it's... I, I wonder if that was intentional, though, because I remember it was a movie. I think it was The Hurt Locker, and they were saying that you know they were talking about military soldiers, and then when they see soldiers get shot, it's not what you would think blood would shoot out of it was almost like a mist of if somebody got shot and it was like a mist of blood and i wonder if that's kind of what they were trying to create in that environment because it's kind of like well, a, let's hope so i a, a militant might be giving kind them of too much credit, but uh... it, we might be but it, <laughs> it's it, possible it, it kind of made me think of that when i was reading it i was like huh it makes me think of that story i heard about what soldiers have said when they've described they've seen people get shot and there's like a mist coming through of blood i
1: don't know yeah well i gotta say my favorite presentation of violence in this book is actually not gun related bullets are boring in my mind but he also carries a sword with him he's got a katana and there is a moment at which he jumps off the top of a roof while he's spying on a, a deal going down with some bad guys and he's just swiping diagonally and cuts a dude's head off and i i think don perlin does an amazing job with that particular panel like it is just (laughs) it's beautiful looking the way the head is just separating at just the right (laughs) angle but also there are these two guys that are sent to go after him that have been given a similar treatment by the organization that's trying to get Bloodshot back and they take him out they're double teaming him they have him underwater and what he's able to do is because his blood can control their bodies which has nanites he basically just makes their hearts pump so fast that their brains explode <laughs> I mean, it's just like, <laughs> he's so creative in his kills Bloodshot you gotta hand it to him there, I think that uh, you're right Chris and that the art itself is always a little... I mean, Valiant, basically, no matter who they said was drawing, it often seemed to be a house style because of the coloring process, Probably, which I know yeah. they were very proud of. Like Jim Shooter said, like, we developed this whole new process, and it's amazing, and you know and all this stuff. But, but at the same time, yeah, it did make it a little bit blah, and not quite as dynamic as it could have been overall. But yeah, so I mean, I think this was a very promising start for the series if you're into that type of hyperviolence. But even if you weren't, to me, I'm like, okay, but they have that technological aspect to it a little bit of sci-fi there that makes it more interesting if you just again want to see how is he going to use those nanites in his blood in different ways in the issues going forward that's what i would be most interested in and i think like if i was going to keep reading it which i owned bloodshot number one at some time and i think i did sell it at bookman's at some point when i was trying to make space at one point so what do you guys say bloodshot number one you coming back for number two
0: I think it's worth it. I mean, I'd, I'd pick up number two just to see what happens next. I don't know if I would, how long I would stay with the series, because it is ultra-violent, and, and they really went for it in that sense. But I would see number two just to say, I read it, and, and
1: know where, where it goes next. If it was dropped in my lap, I'd read it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't even pay the eight cents on the sale day, huh? Yeah, and one thing I will say is just how hot Bloodshot was at this moment is that, he had not even quite premiered yet. And on the back of Youngblood number four that we talked about that was the debut of Pit, there's actually an ad on the back cover for Youngblood Bloodshot. And the, the tagline is, this blood's for you, <laughs> July 93. So it's it's almost like Rob Liefeld's like, wait, you got a guy named Bloodshot and he just shoots a bunch of people? He's got to be in my book. We're going we're gonna to do that. It's perfect. It did, fits with what I do. Did that book ever come out? I'm going to have to research that because I actually did not look that up to see if that was the case. Because <laughs> you're right, nothing is for certain. If it did come out, it probably got delayed until the following January after that. <laughs> Came out alongside Wetworks number one. Yeah. Well, Chris, this has really been a blast. Thank you so much for being on what might be our longest episode ever, but that's par for the course.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> so what I do. <laughs> I, I, I think having me here reeled you guys in just a little bit because you otherwise you would have heard me snoring in about 10 more minutes because it's, it's about, <laughs> about 1.45 in the morning here on the East Coast. But Chris,
1: if people want to find what you do on the Internet and get more, where can they find you?
2: you can find me at uh, a few places there's a blog called chrissoninfiniteearths.com where I write every single day about something used to be a just a DC Comics blog for about four years but kind of got burnt out on that so uh, just write about other uh, comic related stuff now there's also chrisandreggie.podbean.com where I do uh, podcasting and uh, have several shows as Adam had mentioned earlier the most regular shows right now or the most regular show I should say is uh, Moratory Mondays where uh, me and uh, Chris Bailey go through the entire run of Marvel Strike Force Moratori. very underrated series from the 80s, uh, I think uh, folks should check out because it's a uh, it's very good stuff. Right now I'm in the process of moving a lot of our uh, Reggie and my old Patreon exclusive episodes over to the main chris and reggie feed so folks who missed out on it the first time can actually check it out now so there will be some never before heard cosmic treadmills coming out some more spicy episodes as a matter of fact uh, uh very uh, mature themed uh, well mature in quotes because i mean we're going to be talking about cherry pop to so i mean that's not terribly mature also you mentioned quester days that's going to be the show uh, that's going to replace Mortuary mondays when we wrap that series up that's going to be taking a look at the marvel epic elf quest run what else do we do We do. There is From Claremont to Claremont, which will hopefully come back at some time soon, where we're looking at every single book that came out from the time Chris Claremont left the X-Men in 1991 to when he came back in the year 2000. There are two episodes out so far, and uh, I think the combined listening time is like... 23, 24 hours for those two episodes, so it's a long one. Takes a long time to put together. Hopefully, we'll, I'll be getting my feet back under me pretty soon and uh, getting back to that just as soon as possible. But uh, I think that's everything. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter. I did not produce a Mad Dog comic book, though.
1: <laughs> I know I was I was excited. I was like, wait a minute, is that what it was based on, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was not that. You loved Bob so much. <laughs> I did, I did. But uh no, you can find me there on Twitter.
2: And I think that's it. I want to thank you guys for having me. One more time, it was uh, it was a lot of fun being
1: here, and it, it meant a lot to uh, to be invited.
0: Thank you for joining us. It was great to have you. Thank yeah, you. it
1: really was fun. Uh, and I gotta say, I, I can't endorse heartily enough. Chris always has something for you in the podcast feed, and you will definitely definitely learn something. So be sure to check that out. All right, well that does it for this episode of Wizards. Thanks everybody for listening. Remember, you can head on over to our T Public store, get your uh, Wizards the Podcast Guide to Comics merch. If you want to get a shirt you want to get a mug you uh, need a a case for your phone so when you go to the store and you're checking prices against what they have on the shelves and you said hey what's that oh it's wizards
0: if someone gets a case for their phone with our logo on it hit me up on twitter at knizzle and i'll venmo you the money for it because that'll be amazing i'll be so happy
1: (laughs) and of course uh, we have more and more content coming we got the mini episode coming up on the next wizards wednesday but also we have our special series with our interviews with wizards staffers which will start coming out on mondays shortly so you'll get an extra bit of content from us and you won't believe the stories that you're going to hear they are a ton of fun and there's many more of those in the works also down the line about a month or so we'll be bringing you our death of superman special we'll be covering the special edition issue and uh, i've been doing a little bit of research and preparation for that and found some things i didn't know before about wizards involvement in that event so i think you'll you'll be very excited to, to discover that along with us so you can find me at Hoju Coolander on Twitter
0: you can find me at Knizzle on Twitter and also on Instagram at Knizzle as well
1: and of course the show our social media if you're not watching it make sure if this is your first time in because you're listening because you're a friend to Chris's make sure you check us out at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram because we post scans from the issues so that you can really get into everything that we're seeing and describing and feel like you're even that much closer to the conversation. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded.
0: This has been a presentation of The Retro Network.